2: A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture in film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. Welcome to the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. I'm your host, Becky Shrumpton, and today I'm joined by film curator and historian, Alicia Fletcher, and comedian, podcaster, and co-host of the fabulous Stop Podcasting Yourself, Graham Clark. You know those explicit lyric labels? Do you know where they come from? Well, in 1984, the wife of a senator and young mother, Elizabeth Tipper Gore, bought an album to listen to with her 11-year-old daughter. The album was Prince's Purple Rain, and the song was Darling Nikki. She was shocked to hear the lyrics, I knew a girl named Nikki, I guess you could say she was a sex fiend, I met her in a hotel lobby, masturbating with a magazine. Now, keep in mind, this was a soundtrack to an R-rated film that had been out for months and stirred up controversy about sexual content. Prince had been releasing albums since 1978, and uh, he's got a few favorite musical themes that have stayed pretty consistent. Susan Baker, the wife of the Secretary of the Treasury, was horrified when her seven-year-old daughter asked her what a virgin was after listening to a Madonna song on the radio. Banding together with several other prominent wives of politicians, the women became known as the Washington Wives. When they were bankrolled by Coors, as well as Mike Love of the Beach Boys, they became a serious organization called the Parents Music Resource Center, or PMRC. Their belief was that children should be protected from potentially harmful music, and parents should be warned before purchasing that music for their kids. Initially, they came up with a list of 15 songs called The Filthy Fifteen, which of course included Darling Nikki, but also Twisted Sisters' We're Not Gonna Take It, and bafflingly, "Cindy Lauper's Shabop. Yes, I know that's a song about masturbation, but I really believe this is a case of if your kids get the joke, it is not our fault. I, I just got the joke right yeah, now. There so. you go. Know. When you look at the <laughs> lyrics, you're like, yeah, it is totally about that. But like, you yeah. really have to get in there to be like, if you will, get in there to be like, yeah, yeah this is I what about. I loved this that song about. as a kid. Okay. Yeah, me
1: too. And I had no idea that's what it yeah. was about. Yeah.
2: Come on. Well, you can't stop messing with the danger zone, guys. Like, that's what that is. <laughs>
1: <laughs> that's what I still call it to this day. The
2: <laughs> I'm sure that's what many people have referred to it as over the years, both of their own and of other people's. Exactly. <laughs>
1: yeah,
2: that's true. Now, here's the weird thing. Did you know that Tipper Gore is a drummer and she has a band called The Wildcats and she has sat in for both Willie Nelson and The Grateful Dead? Mm. You know, bands with no controversy whatsoever of any, you know, behavior that could be misconstrued as amoral. Now, the committee appeared on TV and in print reciting lyrics they found offensive, their interpretations of those songs, and why parents should be warned. Uh, They wrote a letter to the Recording Industry Association of America, the RIAA, demanding that they police their artists and cancel any contracts of artists who produced morally questionable music or stage shows. They also wanted albums to be labeled with a rating system, like in the movies. And they came up with their own list of what ratings should be on albums. So X for profane or sexually explicit lyrics, V for violence, D, A for drug and alcohol references, O for... A cult content, whatever that means. <laughs> and maybe, just maybe, the protagonist of our first movie could have used an O for a cult sticker. It also features Ozzy in a delicious little role aimed directly at the PMRC, and we'll be talking more about the PMRC in a little bit, because without it, our first movie today would not have been made. Let's talk trick-or-treat. Graham, do you want to walk us through just a, a little bit of plot summary here so people know what they're getting into?
1: Absolutely. This is uh, such a fun movie. It's uh, mm-hmm. it's about a, a young kind of outcast heavy metal fan who gets his hands on a record that is the last record of his favorite uh, heavy metal musician who has passed away, and this is the only copy of this last record that he's put together. So he listens to it, and he uh, listens to it backwards, and he's given instructions on what to do by this uh, heavy metal superstar. Great. And, you know, it starts out earnestly enough. And uh, soon the the voice is pushing him to do crazier and crazier things. And uh, and then, of course, takes on a life of its own. And before you know it, he's uh, staring down our main character, staring down his own idol, and a battle to the finish. So uh, that's, I think, that's a pretty good summary of I what's going so. on. I think
2: so. Yeah. He does have the best heavy metal name, which is Sammy Kerr. And Sammy I Kerr. think that's a Sam- great Sammy name. with an eye. Sammy with an
3: eye.
2: <laughs> <laughs> You're right. This is like a super fun movie. I love it. And uh, unfortunately, it's not a favorite of the director. We'll talk about Charles Smith for a second. This is his first feature film. He would go on later to direct films like Air Bud and Dolphin Tail and Dolphin mm-hmm. Tail 2. Um, he was also an actor. and... And you can see him in stuff like American Graffiti where he plays um, the George Lucas surrogate in that film um, mm-hmm. as well as the Untouchables where he's the tax accountant that gets it in the elevator which is, I always liked that guy because I was like if I was in this era, I'd be the tax accountant Be
3: <laughs> kinder to yourself, Becky <laughs> they would let me have a
2: shotgun but it would not be loaded <laughs> I, I know who I am <laughs> um, and so he came into this and there was a a treatment but no script and they looked at, two Two producers looked at uh, 42 different people and they were like, let's get Charles Smith to come in here and give this a go. And uh, for someone who didn't know much about heavy metal, I think he did a great job.
1: Yeah. yeah. And was this his first? Uh, this was his first movie that he directed. Yes. Yeah. So he's, he's also a very competent director for like I would never have guessed that that was somebody's uh, first attempt. It's it's really quite good.
3: It understands camp without yes. being denigrating to its subject matter like I can see how heavy metal heads love this film and it could have gone the other way right it could have been too mean towards that or yeah. not flattering and I guess because of the Sammy Kerr character which when they went to cast it they first offered it to Gene Simmons Gene Simmons does appear in this film in a pretty small role as like a Wolfman Jack type uh, radio DJ yeah yeah you're talking a Nuke it's very yeah, 80s nuke. right um, <laughs> and so he declines and just takes a smaller role. And, you know, they kind of like bandied about with some actual lead singers of heavy metal bands. And they landed on uh, Tony Fields, who is a solid gold dancer.
1: Oh, yeah. You sent me a clip and he's
3: amazing he's
1: a beautiful man that Isn't, yeah, it's really mean, it's fantastic st- expression and, yeah
3: and that's what you know all the heavy metal like frontmen had to be was basically ballet dancers like yeah. when you actually think about the music videos like it's so physical and so he's this like freddie krueger-esque you know frontman for this band and it works so well because he's actually both scary but very alluring yeah i would say Sexy yeah, scary, like David Bowie. Yeah. Exactly. There's some Bowie esqueness. Yeah. And
1: he, if I didn't know that he wasn't a heavy metal guy, I would have assumed he was because he yeah. was very in the mold of like Poison or Cinderella or, yeah. you know, uh, Motley Crue, all these like beautiful <laughs> kind of young uh, theatrical uh, bands, which uh, you don't, uh, you kind of, it's very specific to that era.
2: They're beautiful yeah. freaks. That's what that is. And it's it's also, of course, uh, like Rob Halford taking from the bear culture, possibly, in some of the mm-hmm. homosexual uh, communities at that time. They're doing mm. all the leather daddy stuff, especially that's where Rob Halford got it all. Uh, we'll be talking about Rob mm. Halford later on from Judas Priest. Mm-hmm. My favorite moment of him is when he first shows up and he comes out of the speaker and that, like, latex pushy outy sort of thing. Yeah. I looked that up. 1983 is when that was happening in, like... video um, video. Is, yeah, oh, Videodrome video is 83, yeah. and then the following year is Nightmare on Elm Street, and then it happens mm-hmm. in this. And that thing is just such a creepy, awesome, practical effect. But yeah. when he shows up and then he does like the saucy little toss over his shoulder and the hair goes, and I was like, oh, who's this guy? I like him so much.
3: <laughs> yeah, I would, I would pledge allegiance to this guy. I understand it now after seeing that scene. Well, and yeah. also,
2: not only was he a solid gold dancer, he also danced with Michael Jackson on a regular basis, including in Thriller, in Bad, mm-hmm. And in, Cap- in uh, Captain EO, he's in all three of them. Well, really? Yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: Wow. So th- he, this guy was. I, I think was we a don't gat. know a
3: lot about him because he passes away from uh, AIDS and HIV in '95. He was 35. So, like, his legacy was kind of cut short, unfortunately. Well, what a he's, role! He's badass.
1: Yeah, it's and it's like it's a f- uh, like you say it was campy and it knew that it was campy, which gives it like a superpower almost, and and it's yeah. acknowledgement of how. You know, a lot of this is silly and they know that it's silly and uh, they're winking at everything. And so having somebody like uh, in the in the lead that was so just perfect as a physicality, uh, it, it gives it like a little bit of cred so that you can think like, OK, I'm not just watching a silly parody mm-hmm. of everything. This movie kind of loves the thing.
3: I think it would have been too distracting to have someone like Gene Simmons in that role. I think it would have been a disservice in some ways to the film. Yeah. So you kind of focus more on the story, and you focus more on the main character, who's this very bullied teenage boy, who I think a lot of viewers, both in 1986 and probably now, would relate to. Someone who's really into a subculture because that's how they can express themselves against the norm of like their bullies. Yeah. So if it was Gene Simmons, it just wouldn't work. I love that Gene Simmons is in this. And I love that Ozzy Osbourne, very much playing against type. Yeah, is in this as well.
1: And he was uh, apparently he was improvising.
2: The entire Uh, thing. 45 minutes. They just let him go for 45 minutes.
1: And I was surprised how coherent he was because he was kind of the (laughs) prototype of not understanding what he was saying.
2: Those rockers really have a strange sense of humor, don't
1: they? I don't even think it's a
3: sense of humor. I think they're just out and out sick people. I mean, And they're trying to make everyone else around them who who listens to their music as sick as they are
2: what you don't see is that Sharon is behind him operating his mouth so that the articulation <laughs> was strings. able to come out exactly <laughs>
3: like <a> puppet <laughs>
2: just in that moment yeah. she she had him rigged for certain events it was just <laughs> special occasions <That's> amazing. Only. <laughs>
1: um, yeah it was so uh so funny cuz i thought his his cameo uh was I thought that that was the end we were going to see of it and then post credits a little a little more Aussie for you so mm-hmm. uh, which post credits weren't a big thing at that Mm-mm. time I know that Ferris Bueller did it but uh, I thought that was so neat that they they were like we have one last funny thing to throw your way Uh, which was a lot of fun.
2: Yeah, it's very tongue-in-cheek. Well, and the soundtrack Mm -hmm. is great, too, and they actually brought Mm -hmm. it to a proper heavy metal band, Fastway, which is a band that some people might not be familiar with, but it was founded by Fast Eddie. I wasn't.
3: Yeah, I don't know Fastway at all. Do you, Graham?
1: No, I didn't know Fastway, but now I'd I'd say I've listened to their, I've celebrated their whole
3: catalog. (laughs) (laughs) Were you a Motorhead (laughs) fan, Graham?
1: Oh, yeah, I love Motorhead.
2: Okay, okay. Do you see the influence? Because Fast Eddie from Motorhead founded Mm -hmm. this. So do you hear the influence of, like, the two? Because I can definitely hear it in the Speed.
1: Yeah, and it's also it's like kind of bluesier than uh, a lot of heavy metal. It kind of uh, mm-hmm. kind of sticks to like blues rhythm a bit, and uh, but yeah, you can absolutely hear. Uh, hear him (laughs) playing.
2: Which I always, I always like a recognizable thing, especially because there's so many people, especially with heavy metal that would say it all sounds the same, but you're right. There's like different, um, different, like listening to Judas Priest versus Metallica, you're hearing two completely different things. And then you look at somebody like, um, like twisted sister, that's closer to punk than it is in the heavy metal with, with the yell singing. Mm -hmm.
1: It was weird because he, in the movie, he's at one point, he's wearing a, a shirt that references a punk label and it was very uh, unlikely that somebody at that time was a heavy metal fan would also be a punk music fan. Right. They seemed to really not like each other a lot. <laughs>
3: that was Crips and Bloods for yes, sure. Yes, yeah. In the 80s and ago. I
1: think a lot of people I grew up with that were punk music fans thought of heavy metal music fans as they're the bullies. They were, the, mm-hmm. they were the ones to watch out for. So it was kind of fun to see a movie where the heavy metal guy is the outcast and the sportos and the jocks really uh, really kept him down.
3: Look, doesn't it get tough maintaining this level of creepiness? Creepiness? Get lost, metalhead. Yeah, I mean, why can't you act normal? I don't know what you're talking about. If you weren't so creepy, you would know what I'm talking about. Like, Do you think who's running for the student council?
2: Um, I actually want to talk about the bullying for a second because this bullying is actually really horrifying. Like it's yeah. it's really intense and you're you can see why this kid would want to do terrible things to the point of murder to these other to these other young children. And the fact that Mark Price, who was skippy on family ties, yeah. and this mm-hmm. is his own. I screamed that when he
1: skippy. first came on screen. Skippy. <laughs> <He> <laughs> <to scream>. skippy!
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, I love that his casting. Um they got him because of course Michael J. Fox had blown up a few years before with mm-hmm. Back to the Future. And they they were like, will lightning strike twice for family ties? Will it? (laughs) And the answer is (laughs) no. Not even with
1: Tina Yeathers.
2: But here's your little weird piece of trivia for that one, is that Keanu Reeves was actually in the running for this. He didn't end up getting it. We're going to talk about the movie he did end up doing later on. And, of course, he did River's Edge, which is, you know, fucking amazing. Michael S. Murphy, who's one of the producers of this, his very next movie was Bill and Ted. So guess where Keanu ended up going. And
1: I could see, uh, actually, I think... I think Skippy was probably the right choice because yeah. Keanu I don't think could have played a nerdy he could play a heavy metal guy but like in Bill and Ted he's kind of like what a cool heavy metal guy would yeah. be and Skippy had the just enough traces of being a nerd that it, that it worked
3: I think it's hinted at that it's anti-Semitic, right? He's a Jewish character. Oh,
1: I They keep yeah. making fun.
3: I mean, I think his last name is Jewish, right? Because it's Weinbaum. Yes. Right. So you would you would think. And I think at one point, one of the bullies, and the main bully here is uh, one of the dudes from Melrose Place. <laughs> of for course. Yeah. In the 90s. <laughs> uh, he's really mean. I think they make a few, like, because he keeps calling him wine bar instead of wine bomb. And then he also asks, is that a Jewish name? And there's there's some element, mm-hmm. extra textual element here of like almost really, really terrible anti-Semitic bullying as well. And I think he plays it really well. And Keanu couldn't, I don't think that would have been the right choice for Keanu for sure.
1: And now that you bring up the the Jewish angle, I guess like the only guy that he actually connects with in the movie is Gene Simmons, who is also Jewish. Good point. you know, so, yeah, that's interesting. I didn't pick up on that uh, watching it. But as you say it, I'm like, oh,
2: yeah, that totally that fits. This is one of those movies that I feel like the way it was created and developed should not have led to as good a film as it is. And it's the fact that everyone's sort of working together. So this was sold. Uh, We're going to be talking about Joel Soysen later on when we talk about Dracula 2000. Um, And he had kind of a modus operandi where he had access to he was a very good producer and a very good hustler. He's not dead, but I will speak of him as if he's in the past because we're in the 80s. And he would come up with a title for something and the title would be strong and then he would go and get money for it and then he'd be like, okay, well now we need a script. <laughs> and that's when they would right. have to write the story. So he had Trick or Treat and he had the funding and that's when they went and got the writer for this who just wrote a treatment and then they just started casting off of the treatment. And from my understanding, the writer of this basically is the wine bomb character.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. I've read that as well.
2: Yeah, he's that dude. So, um, and then even Charles... Smith who directed the reason he got the job was he came in and was like poking holes in the treatment going well this doesn't make sense this doesn't make sense this doesn't make (laughs) sense so it became this like collaborative process of everybody putting this thing together which does not always end well but in this case I feel like it makes it cohesive the only thing I don't quite yet. Do you think this is on the side of the PMRC? Because he is a cult. He is trying to kill them. He is a bad guy. And Linebomb shouldn't actually be engaging in this. You should be loyal to your heroes. Make it turn on you. Is this actually anti-heavy metal? That's
1: a good question. Oh, first mm. of all, I think Trick or Treat is the worst name for this movie.
3: <laughs> I don't get it. There's one scene with a pumpkin. There's yeah, one scene with a like pumpkin
1: and then there's like it's a, a costume dance. yeah halloween dance yeah. and it just as a title uh if i didn't know already what the movie was going to be i would pass it over so quick because yeah. it just sounds like a, it sounds like a thing that takes place on halloween <laughs> and there's there's like a foreign title for it that's like death at 33 rpms mm-hmm. or something that's a better that's a title. title that's a great that's title. a wonderful title but yeah i think it's i think it's pro i think it's winking the whole time i think it, whoever made it isn't anti heavy metal maybe not pro heavy metal but i don't think they're they're trying to cuz the skewering's too uh hilarious <laughs> to be trying to like pointed the way that somebody attacking a movie like that would be so i i think it was somehow in favor of
3: yeah i think i agree and looking at the initial you know the history of those people speaking out about um, these explicit lyrics it wasn't reserved just to heavy metal Obviously, Judas Priest kind of fell under fire because it was claimed that two kids had killed themselves be- when they listened to the lyrics of a Judas Priest album backwards, and that actually went into a lawsuit that was dismissed. But I mean, like Tipper Gore speaking out against Madonna, which is certainly not heavy metal, and speaking out against <laughs> rap a few years later, they were non-discriminate in who they were upset over. It's just heavy metal seemed to get a lot of the publicity at this given time.
1: Yeah, and it was yeah, it was also just around the general. Uh, satanic panic, and so you know, mm-hmm. heavy metal really squeezed into that <laughs> into that little <laughs> area very, very perfectly with all the kind of icons and and just singing about the devil and stuff like that. It just it was a perfect marriage of of uh parents freaking out, you know.
2: Which is fun yeah. our small person has now learned to throw up the horns. They are 7 and it is the funniest really? thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They get when they like have victory now, they just like throw up the horns and they're good to go. They also when they're playing video games, their way of swearing is to say peace be with you. So, you know, I think we're doing parents <laughs> <Word> is- <well. laughs> I have no idea but I love it so much. But like it's that's just why I'm like, you know, you can't you can't you can't police where your kids are going to get this stuff from because I, I don't know where Peace Be With You came from, but I think it's hilarious. Yeah. It's very you know? funny. It's so yeah. funny. But like the learning more about the PMRC because I went down a rabbit hole. I am not going to make people like listen to all I the I was research. concerned about Becky at one
3: point. <laughs> I read <it laughs> so much. this rabbit hole that I told her to pull herself out.
2: I was like, no, 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 John Denver. John Denver. Um, <laughs> but, oh man. If yeah, well, I'll, I'll get into this in a second. But like this to me just seems like a whole bunch of, specifically white women, um, got pissed off because that happens, but did not do their homework and Mm there's like a bunch of it so like Candy Stroud who was a journalist and a PMRC spokeswoman said uh, both at the time and in 2015 wow things have really changed since Elvis and the Beatles forgetting of course that like Elvis notoriously would have to be shot from the waist up because his hip Mm -hmm. swivels were too controversial and then the Beatles among their many controversy John Lennon had that bigger than Jesus and all of their albums were burnt on mass like you know no controversy with them but they had their Senate committee and the people who they brought in front of them to testify were John Denver, who was like, yeah, yeah, good old American boy. That makes sense. Frank Zappa and D. Snyder. And D. Snyder to this day still doesn't know why they called him or how he ended up there. Um, He's like, I think they wanted Vince Neil because Vince (laughs) Neil in 1986 would have given them the show they wanted.
1: Yeah. It was also like when you watch any clips of it, Everybody's laughing like everybody's having a fun time whenever D Snyder says something or Frank Zappa says something. People are laughing. And I think it's because the only people who are taking it really seriously are Tipper Gore and the women behind it. And I mm-hmm. think it's seen as like this is a frivolous thing that we've put the, the wives of these politicians up to. And so we're going to have this trial. And we're gonna-. But there's a lot of laughter, which makes it seem like they weren't really uh as mad as they <laughs>
0: There's to me. that but it's also yeah. the people
2: they brought in are brilliant and very very funny. So yes. like one of my one of my favorite things is that Frank Zappa has no one has forced Mrs. Baker or Mrs. Gore to bring Prince or Sheena Easton into their homes. Thanks to the constitution they are free to buy other forms of music for their children. Apparently they insist on purchasing the works of contemporary recording artists in order to support a personal illusion of aerobic sophistication. Ladies please be advised, the 898 purchase price does not entitle you to a kiss on the foot from the Composer or performer in exchange from a spin on the family Victrola, like. Who? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the other reason that people were probably laughing and having a good time is that this was all for show and media exposure. Like, the PMRC had already won. They just really liked being in the spotlight. The RIAA had already agreed to do the explicit music labeling, um, probably in exchange for a passing vote on a new bill that was going to tax blank tapes and recording equipment and give a large chunk of that tax back to record labels to offset the loss of people pirating music. Uh, Frank Zappa even calls them out on this at one point in his speech. Like, this was just a big waste of everybody's time. I
3: know, I know the, um, during the trial, this is a different trial, the trial, the lawsuit over the, the death of these two boys, the manager of Judas Priest was uh, called to testify. And he said, like, if we were going to put lyrics that could only be, you know, heard by playing the record backwards. Don't you think the, like, message would be buy more? <laughs> yeah. <these prisoners? laughs> yeah. Not these two fucked up kids, very sadly, tragically going to a pharmacy parking lot and killing themselves. Like, why would I do that? Yeah.
2: Well, one of them killed themselves. The other one, unfortunately, blew their face off with a shotgun. And he survived, and he's the one who told them that it, they he, he was hearing do it, do it over right. and over again. It's really tragic, right. like incredibly tragic.
1: But it's also, it's it's systematic of saying like teenagers don't they don't have their own agency they're not smart enough to yeah. outwit a uh, a backwards message in a, in a song <laughs> it really looks down on teenagers to be like we need to protect them because they'll go they'll do whatever if we if they well, hear a suggestion to do it
2: and also making the assumption that parents aren't having conversations with their children about this stuff, right? Like, if you cannot talk to your 11-year-old about masturbation and they have questions about it, perhaps there's something going on in your home that is, you know, maybe there's
3: some other issues to be looked at. Maybe the I'm parents are like, let God
1: Rob it. Halford teach them. That's not,
3: that's not my job. <laughs> exactly. It's one, of the, it's one of those things, too, where, like, we're talking about the 1980s yeah. where um, I'm born in 83 I think we're all around the same age, and it's like, I was left unaccompanied all the time. Like, no babysitter. Just, like, the 80s were a different time where you could say, I'm out of here, Mom. I'm going to go see Sally. And Sally might not even exist. Yeah, yeah, Sally yeah. Sally was probably, like, I was probably going and doing something wrong that I shouldn't have been doing, like, stealing Popeye cigarettes from a convenience <laughs> store at, like, 10. Yeah. It's such a different way of parenting now. And I think this kind of reaction that happened in the mid eighties was a counter reaction to the fact that parents were not fucking around yeah. at all. And so all they're going to do is blame the lyrics of songs was a, for why their kids are there was fucking. a
1: documentary I watched uh, recently called class action park. And
3: oh, it's, yes. that, so that is such
1: a perfect <sighs> example of what Good you're point, talking Graham. about. Like yeah. parents just were very hands off.
3: <laughs> here's $5, try not to die on this water slide. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Hitchhike on the Jersey Turnpike to get there. <laughs> well, and this is why I want to bring up John Denver, because both Frank
2: Zappa and Dee Snyder were like, oh, guy, what's what's the golden boy going to say? And he shows up, and his speech is also on YouTube, and I highly recommend people go watch it, because it's very similar to, like, the Fred Rogers saves public television speech, in my opinion, because he, everyone was like, oh, yeah, he's going to be on the side of the PMRC. He shows up, and he's like... Uh, This is censorship, 100%, and I do not condone this. And he starts talking about Rocky Mountain High and everyone thought it was a drug song because they misinterpreted. And then he says what the government needs to be meddling in is the fact that these kids are disenfranchised, they're disillusioned because they're living in poverty, they're dealing with the threat of nuclear war constantly, they're depressed, and that's why they're self-harming. And that's what the government needs to do something about. And it's like, "Hmm, sorry, what? (laughs) Mike dropped John Denver.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I never never thought about it until... I listened to a podcast called You're Wrong About, and they mm. took this whole thing apart piece by piece. And uh, yeah, the John Denver thing was really like a real surprise, like you say, and nobody knew mm-hmm. that that's what he was going to talk about. And also it that he would have been the bridge between what they were doing and what a parent would think that they're doing. And so it was, it was nice. It was nice that he... Hopped in.
2: And this should also be clear that this was not a Reagan initiative. This was the Democrats.
1: Yeah. And it's, you know, like I remember during the time around Columbine, everybody was blaming things on Marilyn Manson. So it was everything old is new again. And now it's video games Mm -hmm. is the thing that everybody's quick to blame. So it's just, Well, that's because yeah, we don't bogeyman. want to look at
2: the actual problem. That's yeah. a good point. Well, because the actual problems are harder to deal with, right? Like, how the hell do you deal with mental illness in children when you're not actually willing to put any resources into it, when you can just slap a label on something? Yeah,
1: yeah, absolutely.
2: But coming back into the actual film itself, I want to talk about the special effects in this, because for something that is so freaking low budget, and this is, I'm sure a lot of people would have been up in arms about this if they walked in on their children watching something like this, and all of a sudden you have this, like, demon gargoyle half-hunched over a half-naked, woman. Thank you, Sammy Kerr. That's why people like Sammy Kerr. That little gargoyle's name is Skeezix and he's awesome mm-hmm. and I wish he was in more of this. Um, uh, so The effects were created by Kevin Yeager and he designed and operated the original Chucky doll as well as he did a bunch of like the Freddy Krueger makeup. He was one of the, the mm-hmm. key developers for that which is I think partially why you have Sammy and as a I firm think victim. he did the
3: Crypt Keeper. He did. Right? Who's like my favorite little dude. Love that man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <Love him. laughs> what were the Crypt Keepers? Keeper, do that's what
1: it was. <laughs> <laughs> he would make. He would just do pun. a pun. That's what he would do. He'd do a pun, and then laugh. yeah,
3: I like puns a lot. <laughs> and then laugh, and then cut
2: to something else. Whereas you would just be standing there going, <laughs> and everyone yeah. would be, yeah. you know, okay, what's going on? But I think this looks great too, considering the budget.
1: I thought, yeah, I thought it was amazing. I thought it was as good special effects as Ghostbusters. That was my because they were doing a lot of that kind of the effect, and it wor- it worked True. perfect for the era. That it's in and they did have an effect a couple times that I thought was really good and I don't know how they would have done it where the Sammy Kerr pulls somebody out of the television and uh, I don't yeah, I have no idea yeah, how they one... did that.
3: It's almost like... Yeah, it is really that is the best effect I think. It's the old lady that he pulls, he strangles through the television, and then pulls out kind of like a burn. And that corpse. old
1: lady was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure as Large Marge. Yes,
3: yes, <laughs> I love Large Marge. <laughs> I also, I mean, that's really great, Graham, that you compared to Ghostbusters because Skeezix is basically just yeah. Zool, right? Yeah. Like the little like creature in the fridge that takes over uh, Dan- the Dana character. Yeah, yeah. There's it's it's a yeah it's a low budget film. And, you know, if this was made, well, there is a trick-or-treat from 2007. It's not a remake. It's a totally different film. But if this film were made in, like, the 2000s, it wouldn't work because the CGI would be so bad that I think it would just take you out of the film. There's something about these practical effects that watching them 35 years later is so effective, and I love it so much. And this is a good one for that because the makeup's very – it's very Freddy Krueger-like on Sammy Kerr. It's Burns. He dies in a fire. So nothing, like – nothing mold-breaking or anything, but it just is simplified and is fun, and it really, really works. And if people want to
2: make a little marathon for themselves, because obviously there were several of these heavy metal horror movies made. If there are two more that I may recommend, because the rabbit hole is deep for this one for me, they are actually directed by the same person. One of them is written by a woman, and they were made back-to-back. Rock and Roll Nightmare, which features John Mickey Thor, who's a Canadian bodybuilder in, I believe, his only acting role, and there is was probably a reason for that. That one's super fun and delightful. And then there's a second one called Black Roses. Black Roses, everything I've seen of it, I have not watched it yet. It looks bananas They turn into <laughs> demons. There's like all these practical effects. The kids go crazy and start killing their parents. Like it looks nuts and awesome. And every review I've seen is like, this is a must-see. So if you want to put yourself together like a little uh a little evening of 80s heavy metal horror, black roses, rock and roll nightmare, trick-or-treat. There you go. My gift to you for COVID. Just <laughs> don't watch them backwards because you might end up killing your parents or <laughs> And speaking of parents, Graham, would your father have a review? of this one
1: oh he would say uh you know it's a bunch of no kid no good kids up to some uh (laughs) you know ghost uh you know there's a ghost of a guy and he comes back and he blows people away with his guitar and uh give it a miss is what he would say give it a miss (laughs) give
3: it a miss yeah, but So, just for some background, I'm sure most of our listeners probably also listen to "Stop Podcasting Yourself," Graham's podcast. But my favorite part is always when you either surmise what your dad would think of a film, or sometimes actually give the review that your dad. Told yeah, you, like, the yeah.
1: Night and I could. It's funny because yeah. he uh, back in the day there was a movie called "Class of 1984."
3: Oh yeah, I know that. And one. it
1: was kind of yeah. like a, an early version of crowdfunding, and he was a part of the the crowd that like made that film. So yeah, Amazing. so we had like an old poster in our house that that's what he got for his contribution was a poster, and so he's familiar with the genre, but I don't think.
2: I <laughs> well, that movie is brutal, especially like you compare that one to to this. That movie is like really. Oh, it's
1: intense, yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: <laughs> um, and then, what would your father think of the fact that the the original name for the Sammy Kerr character was going to be Chilly Willy? <laughs>
1: I think honestly
3: That sounds like something your dad would mistake anyway like Chili Willie comes out of the TV I
1: would love the movie one step more if the lead if the lead singer was named Chili Willie then I would have been like well this now is, is elevated another another whole step It's
3: perfect Isn't Isn't that a Simpsons joke? Doesn't Homer think the red hot chili peppers are called Chili Willie? He's like he's going we want chili it's, no it's Barney he's like we want Chili Willie and he just like <laughs> oh man and then the other thing that I did not
2: like this didn't even occur to me is that um, the Mark Price character calls himself Ragman because it's an anagram mm-hmm. of anagram and I was like oh mm-hmm. man <laughs> these are the jokes people I love, I love yeah, it yeah that's i that onto. was
1: another alternate title for it was Ragman which is a great yeah. name for a movie but again a terrible name for this movie because that is brought up one time and that is
3: it. Yeah, you would picture a different monster if this was called Ragman.
1: I I could get down to watch a movie called Ragman.
3: Like a monster that's just made of smelly
2: dish t-
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> No, it
2: would end up being actually about rag time and then he would come out of Big and be like, Hey, you crazy kids, and that's what Ragman would be about.
3: I'm I'm sure there's like a Chevy Chevette somewhere in existence with the license plate ragman. Like some fan of this film has a Camaro or something that says Ragman yeah. on it.
1: I just wanna say one of my favorite things in this movie, and it's it's like it's an Easter egg is at the Halloween dance when everybody's panicking and they're outside. One guy's being taken out on a stretcher and he is dressed as a character named Billy Bob that was part of an animatronic band at a place called Showbiz Pizza, which was the precursor to Chuck E. Cheese. What?
3: What? How do you know that? How did you know? Because I know that I remember that seen but I knew something looked weird about but I did not make that connection.
1: There's a great documentary on YouTube about that pizza place that kind of follows yeah. people who yes. were fans of it from the eighties and have made their own sets and all this kind of stuff. And he was the lead character. And so it was very obviously put in there for some reason.
3: That's amazing. So, yeah, that was... I'm very obsessed with Chuck E. Cheese or Charles entertainment mouse, as <laughs> <refer to laughs> <them>. especially, right. <laughs> especially in the COVID years where I don't know about Vancouver, but where we record Becky and I record this in Toronto, like it bit the bullet, like Chuck E. Cheese is done. They're all like, totally in disrepair around the city so you can drive to them and the signs are hanging off of the building oh wow and i know the animatronics have not been there for a long time but i love the photos of all the dumped animatronic uh charles e mouse like in a dumpster like totally like peeled off uh, it's like yeah. a, I'll send it to you it's a horse <laughs> uh,
1: yeah so it was just like one thing that I went I amazing. caught it and then I had to rewind it and make sure that that's what it was <laughs> and so that was not, like a nice weird little easter
2: egg you're a better person Thank you now Graham. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sharing that with everybody. And it's also, Charles Smith also has uh, a cameo in this as well. He's the princ- mm. He's the principal with the weird glasses and everything doing that opening speech. <laughs> mm-hmm. He didn't want to do a cameo. He said, the only way I will do this is, because he didn't have enough money for more actors. And he was like, the only reason why, uh, the only way I'll do this is if I can have like a weird disguise. So he does. <laughs> Let's take a little break, and when we come back, it's two guys, a borrowed camera and microphone, and a whole bunch of substance-fueled honesty. It's a visit to the heavy metal parking lot after the break.
0: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
2: The Capitol Center, suburban Maryland. The parking lot is filled with fans tailgating before a Judas Priest show. These are exactly the people the Washington wives were afraid of. That's where a bootleg documentary legend begins. Alicia, you love this one. I'm a sucker
3: for these character study documentaries. Heavy Metal
2: Parking Lot. Let's go.
3: Yeah, I think of this as like an anthropological document. Um, <laughs> you're not or wrong. Or something like the Rosetta Stone <laughs> of teenage dirtbags. I think there's probably... it's. I think listeners, you're going to fall into two categories. You have never heard of Heavy Metal Parking Lot and are like, what the hell are they talking about? Or you know every beat, every character of this film, every weird catchphrase you probably have memorized. And I'm in that boat, obviously. <laughs> Heavy Metal Parking Lot is only a 15-minute film. And uh, it's it's just all happenstance. So it's these two guys, uh, Jeff Krulick and John Hine, who were working for a public access television station outside of um, Washington, D.C., and they wanted to make these parking lot movies, and they. They just stumbled upon the fact that a Judas Priest concert was happening one weekend in May in 1986 and just grabbed, borrowed their uh, U-matic, they're filming all on pneumatic tape, which is a super outdated mode if anyone's a VHS or magnetic tape nerd, grabbed it just started interviewing people in this parking lot of the stadium and this is an era in the United States where if you were 18 you could buy beer so that meant anyone could get beer you could be 14 years old and be able to like just give someone you know enough money to get beer like beer is everywhere drugs are everywhere it's a tailgating party in the parking lot and they just basically hit record and the rest is history I think I mean obviously this is the era I grew up in but when I was in high school, we always had metalheads. And it was like, I think every high school probably had some group of metalheads. And it's like, they're the zoo animal. You see them in a cage. You admire them from afar. <laughs> there's a level of safety. Really? Heavy metal parking lot is like going on safari- <laughs> and seeing them in the wild, and you were completely unprotected.
2: Now, (laughs) I have to tell you, Alicia, I am from Alberta, so I do not feel protected at all. I did not think they were pretty animals in a cage. I
3: thought they were terrifying, and they were everywhere. It is Uh, is Alberta, yes. Yeah. This is um, a film that John Waters referred to as one of the scariest films he's ever seen. Uh, And John Waters is from Maryland, please keep in mind, from Baltimore, uh, there are Corvettes. There are you know there are Confederate flags. Most of them are in the form of tank, tank tops yeah. being worn by people. Um, big hair, lots of substances, you know every kind of like car that we consider like from the eighties, like the Chevette, the, the the Camaros, lots of Camaros. It's and it's just going around and asking people's opinions on heavy metal and specifically Jewish priests
1: and Dawkins.
3: And Dawkins. Yes. So Dawkins was the opening band. Um, and a lot of people actually in this film are more Dawkins fans, which are kind of doing some Dawkins research. I was like, oh, this band seems pretty cool. I had not heard of them before. They are
1: pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. I think this is where I learned about them when I was in high school was this so
3: you st- Okay. I, I want to stop right now, Graham, because I, I was older when I saw this. And I didn't know it existed prior to like actually ha- having the like director present it. How did you see this in high school? Because this is not a released film, we should say, at this point in 1986.
1: No. Yeah. What it was was back in the day when I was in high school, I knew a guy who was the guy that you would go to who would have these types of videos. He had all sorts of (gasps) like what would be now very common on YouTube. He had all the videos. If you went over to his house, you could watch. Yeah. Uh, the outtakes of Colonel Sanders when he's drunk doing a commercial and he yeah. had all that stuff. That was one of the ones that he said was a must see. Yeah. So we watched it. And yeah, it was like I'm from Alberta as well. So it was very familiar hmm. uh, that, that there's a reason FUBAR
2: was made there. are yes. FUBAR. Right. Yeah. yeah. Right.
1: So there was it was a very f- familiar and almost to the point of like. So what? <laughs> you know, yeah. like we could go to any parking lot anywhere in Calgary and find these people wow.
2: hanging out. <laughs> wow. Yeah. You lived a precious and sheltered life, Alicia. <laughs> Just informing yeah, you. Yeah, I cow. mean, I grew Are up, you I'm from same? Oregon,
3: from Portland. And there's oh, yeah. metal there and then like lived a lot in Southern California and then came back and forth to Toronto. So it it, it is much more of a like unique thing to me to see this. But I love that you point out that you had to go find a guy who had the tape because that's how this film was distributed. They made it in 86, and then it kind of languishes for quite a while. And the only way you could get to see this is if you had, like, a next-generation copy of the original tape. And so there's sort of this, like, I say anthropological, but it's more of, like, a genealogical study of heavy metal parking lot where they've tried to find who was the person who disseminated it first. Like, who's the Johnny Appleseed (laughs) of heavy metal parking lot and you find out that okay there's a a guy in san francisco who made the original copies he made 10 copies and then gave it to 10 people and those 10 people then made their copies and so you're just getting these like 12th generation VHS tapes to watch it until it's properly presented on DVD for the first time in I think 2003 or four. Like, it takes that but long.
2: The big hub was Mondo Video in L.A., yeah. which is like a legendary video store there where, like, all the cool kids would go. And from my understanding, Sofia Coppola found yes. it and wanted to put it in, like, a TV show. She wanted to be the first person to, like, you know, really break it out. Apparently, yeah. Nick Cage, big fan, no
3: surprise. He's used this as a character study for many of his own characters, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I know mean, the Coppola thing... It it's a show that she was supposed to have, Comedy Central, and it never it never went. So. Now they're lost.
1: That was the thing, too, is back then, having access to something like that made you, like it let you into this kind of exclusive club mm-hmm. that uh, if you knew this, you would probably also know this thing and also know another thing. And so, uh, you know, like it's not a surprise. It was only a matter of time before somebody who was famous uh, picked it up and said in public you know, I like this thing or I like this band or I like this uh cartoonist or whatever. And then it it blows up. But back before it blows up, it was like you're in a tiny club and only the people in this tiny club know this yeah. ref they only they're the only ones who know Zebra
3: man.
2: And oh so you- <laughs> Zebra
3: man You're kind of describing hipsterdom right now. I yes. understand yeah. that, right? Okay, but I think great. this phenomenon's been destroyed for us. Like I think we've lost it in the internet age. I mean, first of all, VHS or like rental stores don't even exist anymore. Like there's a reason why there's a documentary called The Last Blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I miss this because I, 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 I know what you're describing, Graham, and I was just on the tail end of it, the pre-YouTube sort of era. And uh, it's a time that we've lost and it's it's sad. But I mean, Heavy Metal Parking Lot has emerged now 35 years later as this like, very important document of the mid nineteen eighties. Yeah. Now here's the question I have: Do you think that we are laughing at or with these people? Oh, we're laughing at them, Becky. I'm not from Alberta. Are you sure? But I'm laughing <laughs> at them.
1: That's weird because I'm laugh. I think I'm in the camp of laughing with because right. I like that. You know, it's that nothing in the movie uh, is them acting awful. So you mm-hmm. know what I mean. It's just a bunch of kids being kids nobody's uh, saying anything terribly vile. And it's, true. it's just, yeah, just kids that are excited to be having beers in a parking lot before a concert.
0: I go tonight the night and sit back, run back my car, drink yeah. a few beers, oh, and no pick on some unsuspecting victims.
1: Much in the same way as, uh, like, I think the equivalent now would be the Juggalos would be yes. that type yes. of, it's like a big community and everybody's welcome and, you know, the focus is the music and uh, there's kind of uh, an outfit that goes along with being into that, mm-hmm. uh, that mm-hmm. type of music. So I think it's, you know, it's community wherever you find it kind of thing.
3: I like that. Maybe I'm being too harsh. I, I definitely like love all of these people and have you know, research where are they now? Where are they now that they're in their, like, yeah. mid-50s? And I, I love seeing them, for the most part, kind of live their best lives. Like, a lot of these people who are 17, in some cases there's the, there's the one 13-year-old girl, which is, uh, she's pretty famous from this film. Yeah. They go on to, like, have record labels and be in their own, like, metal bands. Like, they're still sort of, even the ones that became plumbers are still kind of, like, living the good life, uh, often still in that community around Maryland. And it's... It's nice. It's just, it's, I don't know. I love watching this. This is a feel-good film in most ways. You mentioned people have sort of idolized each of this character. Like, both of you referred to someone as Zebra Mm -hmm. Man.
2: Like, there's a there's Glenn Burney girl. Like, people, because they don't have names for the most part, Mm -hmm. people have kind of assigned them identities based on, like, this maybe 30 seconds to a minute you get to see of them. And I think, uh, Alicia, you were mentioning that, like, Zebra Man is, like, the person people have really connected with as, like, having the manifesto.
3: Yeah, like, if you were to Google heavy metal parking lot for people who haven't, seen it or heard of it you're probably going to get an image of zebra man and he was certainly used at on the promo poster he's he's given the most attention i think because he's just um he's coherent completely coherent despite being quite drunk but he just has the most like he has a manifesto exactly like you say becky um which because we can't play a huge clip of it can i just read exactly what he says please yeah. do I'm not going to be able to have the same inflections or um, Maryland accent, so be warned. But
2: Or nor will you hit yourself in the mouth with a microphone, but that's not. Yeah, okay. I did so put we'll that in like, square brackets
3: to indicate when he hits himself in the mouth. But <laughs> <laughs> okay. Heavy metal rules. All that punk shit sucks. It doesn't belong in this world. It belongs on fucking Mars, man. What the hell is punk shit? And Madonna can go to hell as far as I'm concerned. She's a dick seriously <laughs> and this is where he hits himself in the mouth with the microphone <laughs> heavy metal definitely rules twisted sister judas priest Dokken, ozzy scorpions they all rule he takes a break at this point to acknowledge someone behind him yeah she's tripping jack daniels it all rules all that shit rules <laughs> this punk shit circle shit which i think is a specific reference to a band a punk band he's talking about the circle circle church. Church. yeah yeah this punk shit, circle shit, and the and the dicks and all, that can all go to hell. I don't care, you know. I don't really give a shit about that kind of punk fuck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it's so good. It's almost like it almost is like a soliloquy. <laughs> like it's, <laughs> yeah, it's he's it. probably
1: that gets the most uninterrupted screen yeah. time of anybody. And yeah. There's one guy that's kind of, he looks more like a hippie than anything. And he s- says part of his philosophy is to keep an open mind. And, yeah. it, and he's very sweetly said like, it's going to be a great show. And uh, yeah. yeah, it was very sweet. And the guy that caught my attention uh, when I saw it years and years ago was uh, Graham of dope. Graham of dope. Yes, Graham of dope. That yeah. was, that spoke to me. I was, uh, anybody with <laughs> Graham in their name was on my radar at the time. <laughs> <laughs>
0: What, what's your name? Graham, man, like Graham of and shit. Yeah. <laughs> where, where are you
2: from? That's probably how he introduced himself in like job interviews. He'd be like, "Hello, Graham," as in Graham <laughs> <I'm> Dope. Nice <laughs> to meet yeah, you. Thank yeah. you.
3: <laughs> I love, um, I love the, the very cute girl who I think uh, Jeff Krulex asks, like, "What would you do if Rob Halford like walked right here, like right, right behind you?" And she's like, i jump his bones." She's <laughs> just so I'm
2: confident. It. It's about half and half. I know, because no one knew he was gay at the time, right? Yeah. That wasn't out publicly. Although there is the one guy who's like, I don't know about that guy.
3: <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, Rob Halford is an icon. Like, not just because yep. of Judas Priest, but he came out at a time when a lot of musicians were not. Like, it was it was impressive. Obviously, they did not clear the music of Judas Priest when they nope. initially <laughs> made this film for public access. Uh, television and it kind of came later once judas priest was made aware that this film existed it was really big on the underground scene they struck i'm not sure what kind of deal but they struck some sort of understanding that they could distribute this on dvd and kind of minimally show it on television and not have to pay what probably the six figures of rights that it would just cost anyone else to use a judas priest song in their film
1: yeah that's a lot of things get hung up that way because they somehow snuck yeah. Music into it. I know the TV show W. Carapy in Cincinnati played all these yeah. great rock songs and then they couldn't release the DVDs. It took them like a decade to kind of yeah. unravel who owned what and. Where they still? There's to play a out. there's an
3: article in the New York Times today, which obviously listeners will be hearing this a few weeks later. But uh, it's written by Callum Marsh, and it's about how some of the even TV shows from the '90s, something like Dawson's Creek, if you go to watch it on Netflix, the song that we remember opening that TV show, like I don't want to wait, that song. Yeah. It's not on there because the rights have expired and they couldn't renegotiate. So it's a totally different song. Oh, that's wild. And I think Freaks and Geeks um, somehow and has Geeks magically been able to get all its music secured. Right. But you're right. This is and this comes up with Hollywood Suite all the time. There's films that you know we always take. We want viewers to write to us to say what they want to see, and we we actively try to go and get those films. And some of them, the reason they haven't been on Hollywood Suite is, and these are major films, is major studios will be like we don't have the rights to the music anymore so it's completely unavailable
1: man oh man that stinks because yeah so many uh i watched some whole documentary about copyright law and you know there are people like walt disney was a big big proponent of like borrowing art and building on Mm -hmm. the previous person's uh existing work and now they're the suingest uh Mm -hmm. (laughs) brand in the entire Mm -hmm. world So Mm -hmm. it is, it's a bummer that, uh, that. People can't just see it as complimentary.
2: Yeah. More than that, this could not have been made today because they did not get the rights from any of these people to use their images or audio, right? They're lucky no one has sued them to have their portion taken out of it because that would happen now, right? You would have to go around and like get everybody to sign waivers and then have that as a stack. And you know, when they sobered up, I'm sure they would get some phone calls. I was going to say, I would argue that even
3: if they had the waiver signed, a judge would look at the intoxication level and be like, you are not a (laughs) sound mind to sign that waiver and therefore this is moot. Yeah. However, the two other films I'm sure that they, uh, I'm sure they would have been
2: fine with, which are um, Neil Diamond Parking yes. Lot, which I actually thought was absolutely beautiful. It was very delightful. yeah. It's lovely. Just And they're just all so excited to be there. Gosh, oh shucks.
3: It's the same stadium that the Judas Priest concert took place at 10 years later, and I think just a few months shy of when it was demolished.
1: Oh, yeah, wow. So, it was
3: imploded, yeah.
1: And it was, I think that it was the exact same level of sweetness as Heavy Metal yes. Parking Lot. I thought they were both incredibly sweet documents of, uh, you know, like a like a fanship, you know, there's all these people that had seen Neil Diamond a dozen times, 15 times. uh.
3: This lady came all the way from Cleveland to see him. This is my aunt. Right. I bought these tickets and told her she was coming from Cleveland to see Neil Diamond. Yes, yeah, bringing their daughter for their first Neil Diamond concert, like that kind of thing.
0: Can you tell me how you got your daughter interested in in, in this? Because she could (laughs)
3: could be... Well, she used to make fun of me, and now she likes it.
0: <laughs> what other bands do you like besides Neil Diamond?
3: Van Halen.
1: Like, I have a friend who is big Kiss fan, and his son is now a Kiss fan, and they go to the concerts together, and they paint their faces, and uh, it's neat when a parent and a kid can kind of get on the same wavelength mm-hmm. and uh, mm-hmm. enjoy a thing like that.
2: Yeah, especially if it's Neil Diamond. Yeah. <laughs> you don't have to explain what Sweet Caroline <laughs> is. Mm. I
3: think I think um it's important to note that the people who made this film, uh, Jeff Krulik and John Hine, they weren't metalheads. They didn't think either they they didn't dislike metal. They just they weren't part of the subculture when they were making this film. And I think exactly how we talked about trick or treat, that works to their benefit. And I th- yeah, it's interesting because I don't think you could have a like an insider or a metalhead make a film that would have been as effective as this is to really showing this cultural moment in history.
2: Yeah. Well, I want to point people out to t- the two facts. The first one is that Spinal Tap came out in '84, yes. so that's two yeah. years before this, and that of course did not hit as big as it no, is No, it was now a is. huge it's failure at the time. now is. Yeah, yeah, which is so unfortunate because it's, it's as close to perfect as films get. Damn right and then and then decline of western civilization part 2 Penelope Sphericus's documentary mm-hmm. which is one of my favorites that's 2 years away from here that's 88 mm-hmm. so you have this kind of sandwiched right in the middle and we have kind of found with this podcast that the minute hollywood starts making movies about it is when the movement is already
3: imploded or yeah. kind of, kind of uh, about to implode it happened with disco it happened with punk and of course it's going to happen with heavy metal
1: and also like the the commonality between like disco heavy metal and punk is this kind of playing with sexuality and gender and you know who's dressing up and what they're looking like and all this kind of thing so they are doomed almost by the time they start because the mainstream is gonna look down their nose at it and think that it's uh you know abhorrent that their kids could be exposed to this kind of thing and like you say by the time they get a whiff of it it's already stuff. yesterday's news. I you know, heard, like they'll um, do an episode of Law and Order about... That's you
3: know. <laughs> a good example of Law and Order. I was reading a really good review of Heavy Metal Parking Lot that kind of compared it to the Zapruder um, JFK assassination movie because it's the film that was discovered. it's like, Whereas the Zapruder film was basically documenting exactly the moment that Camelot ended, Heavy Metal Parking Lot kind of documents the moment that this metal following would end and just be absorbed into something else. And I that made sense to me. Like, I think that's also why this doesn't become super popular until someone like Nirvana starts playing on their tour bus over and over again. Because you had to have a little bit of distance from when this was a very popular movement to when it was like, a faux pas yeah well,
2: the fact that nirvana is directly responsible for crushing this like that's the death knell is the sounds of smells
3: like teen spirit you know it's ironic for sure yeah
1: but he yeah it's um because what was the the guy whose art he always wore on a t-shirt with daniel johnson yeah. Daniel johnson. Yeah. yeah yeah he was and huge so he, instrumental in that yeah he brought a lot of his favorite things forward mm-hmm. in the 90s and uh was kind of like uh, he obviously like was like a tastemaker mm-hmm. uh, that he was into these things. Then uh, everybody had to find these things, you know, who was this guy who created this movie? Yeah. Who are these people? We talked about uh, the,
3: the movie perfume on this podcast, which was like his favorite book. And as soon as he announced that perfume was his favorite book, it like exploded.
1: Yeah. You know, for all this kind of lasting uh, influence, that I think was one of the cool, really cool things he did was share these things that he was passionate about yeah that were you know off the beaten path
3: yeah yeah
1: oh the one thing I want to say is that uh back in the day this is the power of a of a camera Mm -hmm. uh back in that time is because now everybody has a camera phone whatever nobody cares if you're filming a bunch of people but back then a camera meant These guys were legit somehow.
2: Now, here's what's interesting: is they originally were not thought to be legit because they showed up and they were part of their like local station. And then when they were telling people they were part of the local station, they were like, "F off, whatever." And then they were like, "We're MTV," MTV. and people were
3: like, "Yeah." Which these guys did not look like MTV. Having met Jeff Krulik, I can tell you they did not look like MTV. I say that with the kindest compliments, but uh, and the camera they were carrying is really. This is like this is a good point, Graham. Like this is a heavy camera. That they had, you know, with a microphone attached. The pneumatic tapes they were recording on, my understanding, were used. So they're re-recording over old material, which is partially why the quality of this is so bad. And they only had about an hour because, you know, the tailgating party doesn't last long. The, you're gonna go into the concert eventually. And they were kind of um working against the sunset. So there's a very there's a lot of stress trying to capture this stuff. And yeah. That's what makes it. I always love thinking about that. Like, and it's, it's remarkable. It's a remarkable, I want everyone to watch heavy metal parking lot. Like you, you deserve that for yourself would be my self care tip to watch heavy metal. This is
2: your Eagle versus shark. Isn't it Alicia (laughs) Eagle versus shark is my, like everyone needs to watch this so we can be friends. This is Alicia's Eagle versus shark. Excellent. It's one of them.
1: It's like, a um, just, you know, think in your own life, what, what kind of group, you belong to and Mm -hmm. this this is the movie for you if you're you know you're part of a knitting circle or if you're part of uh if you love country music or if you love wrestling this this documentary is for you because if you love anything in that way uh these characters will really speak to you
2: yeah i think that is the perfect place to leave it graham thank you so much Uh, alicia fletcher thank you once again for joining us thanks becky Judas Priest rules. That's my.
1: Judas Priest rules. (laughs) Everyone knows it. Madonna's a dick,
2: (laughs) and I don't mean a Madonna. Please don't come after me. You're very scary. (laughs) And Graham Clark, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me. This was a ton of fun.
2: I'm so glad. Well, please tell people how they can hear you have more fun on a regular basis.
1: Uh, you know what? You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Graham Clark. Uh, I'm on Instagram at Graham Clark was taken. Um, (laughs) And I have a weekly podcast called Stop Podcasting Yourself. And again, thank you so much for having me.
2: Thanks so much, Graham. And you can join us next week where Cam, Alicia and myself will explore two animated films about mice. It's Disney versus Spielberg and Blues. That's coming up next week. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to email the podcast? You can do so at podcast at hollywoodsuite.ca. Find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Hollywood Suite. Hollywood Suite is the home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s. Always uncut and always commercial-free, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen, on four HD channels and Hollywood Suite On Demand. Subscribe today at HollywoodSuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton and produced by Alicia and produced by Alicia Fletcher and Cameron Maitland. Today's episode featured Alicia Fletcher and Graham Clark as guests. Supervising producer is Ryan Mains. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagné. Audio engineering by Andy Reid. We'll see you next week.
0: Planning for your next trip?